you would take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, 24 through 31. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast on the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has breath, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but this your word endures forever. Help us, Lord, to sink our roots deep into this word of yours, this holy, inerrant, infallible, in every aspect, your word, truth, truth, truth. And we pray that your spirit would come and open our eyes, enlighten our minds and melt our hearts and move our hands and feet to be the true representatives of this image of yours, being conformed to the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, I've called this sermon Move-In Day. I'm not going to follow that metaphor all the way through, but it is a reflection of what God has been doing. If you notice in the passage, he talks about the trees with the seeds inside the fruit itself, and that is what God did on the third day. That that was all, again, as we said there, God said, I was thinking of you. I was providing for you. But I want to capture the feel of this moment. This is, in many ways and in many parts, the pinnacle of this chapter. So, 17 years ago, I was a youth minister while I was finishing up my Master of Divinity degree in seminary at RTS in Jackson. And Jackson, I don't know if it still is, but at the time was a center of the arts for ballet. There was the annual international ballet competition. And we don't get a whole lot of stuff like that in Jackson. So I thought, I'll just bring the youth group to it. I mean, we talked about in that hymn, it talks about arts flowing from us being in the image of God. So watching people who are skilled at this level, you know, you don't get many chances like that. 
So we carried all these kids and had about 10 kids. And one of those kids surprised me. After a number of the dances, of course, after each one, the lights darkened in the hall. And in this one dance, the bright white light of the stage lit. And standing there on the stage, a ballerina from China, perfectly pitched on one toe, standing straight, what seemed like a, an eternal now moment. And then she moved across the floor, standing on the one toe as her arms flowed and her dainty hands formed a circle. And for the moment, I was transfixed. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then I wondered about this one eighth grade boy who played offensive line on the football team. I thought he must be bored out of his mind. So I looked down the row, and this is what his face looked like. Man as the image of God. Male and female, he created them. If you look on your sheet there, you see this quote from C.S. Lewis. We must see that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. So we see in this passage the main idea that the creator-creature distinction underscores the surprising likeness of humankind to their creator. And why did he make us like this? Well, the central point is a quote from Augustine. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. So how does God make good on making our lives good? Well, God makes good on this by moving us into our new home where he adds some finishing touches, makes some formal introductions, gives some fundamental instructions, and enjoys some first-class enjoyment. So how does God make good on making our lives good? God makes good on this by moving us into our new home, a home worthy of the nobility of the one he will put there, where he adds some finishing chapters in verses 24 through 25. We've seen that there is sort of a framing going on here. In day one, you have light. Day four, the light bearers. Day two, waters in the expanse, which then we fill with the fish in the waters and the fowl in the air. And day three, we have dry land with plant life. And day six, we have land animals. And we'll hold off on coming to man because that's later in the day. And it's a separate event almost. In verse 25, we see this, this word kinds, according to their kind, come up four times. Now, this word kind, roughly, you know, we know our classifications of kingdom and order and phylum and all of those things. I can't remember how they all go species. Kinds may be akin to something like the, when we have that chart of the family uh, of these creatures. So we have beasts of the field, these four-legged, untamable 
and unable to domesticate animals. We have livestock that are four-legged, tameable, and able to domesticate. And then we have that which creeps on the ground that are small or large, may have short or no legs, and appear to be walking on their bellies. Now why? Why all these creatures are, are they made? They are made to serve man as an aid in work, to have limited companionship. That's why you do grow attached to your pets. Your pets are of a different order than your goldfish, right? They more approximate us, even though I don't believe that they really understand us like we think we do. We, they do. But they are, God makes them partially for companionship. Or he's, he's made them for helping in life support systems. We think of uh, butterflies and bees and how they spread pollen around to, uh, to help the spread and growth of the green plants that here are set up to feed us. So how does God make good on making our lives good? Well, first of all, he does this by adding some of these finishing touches for our help and our enjoyment. But then secondly, he makes some formal introductions. So we've talked about four times according to their kinds in verses 24 through 25. What is that kind? That is the animal kind. There is no such thing as the human animal. That is a definition from a man who does not want to have anything to do with God. It is a godless definition of who we are. We are not animals. Why does God make man? There are two clues here in verse 26. Well, first, how does he make man? He says, let us make man in our image. He says this of no other creation. He says, after our likeness, not according to the animal kind, but what kind are we made? According to what kind? According to the God kind. And these two clues come in the form of language and nature. What kind of language has God used to make the other things? There are examples. Let there be light. Let the earth sprout. Let this happen. Let that happen. Let this. It's by fiat, by command, pure command. Let this happen, and it does. The imposition of his will. That's okay. He's God, right? You can do that. But there's a shift in the language from objective command to subjective internal dialogue within God himself. Dramatic shift. Goes from let there be to let us make. God commands himself. If you see in your quote sheet there, the quote from John Calvin up to this point, God has been introduced simply as commanding. Now, when he approaches the most excellent of all his works, he enters into consultation. This is the highest honor with which he has dignified us. There is an executive divine council going on here. We think of office structures, and I've worked in some of these uh, when I worked at Mission to the World, and we had leadership team retreats. When you're about to make big changes, you don't just do it by, okay, you do this. You meet, you mull it over, you meditate about it, and you try to come up with the best design. Now, God, he doesn't need all of that consternation, but what he's telling us here is that this is the pinnacle, the most important thing that I've done ever. And it doesn't mean that he didn't take care in all the other parts of his creation, 
nor that there wasn't any general goodwill toward those things. But what does this language say about our natures? God's language first about himself. Let us make. He speaks in the plural about himself. Now from the early church on, this has been interpreted as a clear but vague reference to the Trinity because Moses wouldn't necessarily have a concept of the Trinity at this point. Not that defined. But we know from the New Testament looking back that what we're seeing here in this internal society of God is a God speaking as person to himself. One God, but interpersonal life. There in a quote from Kelly, I won't read the whole thing, but he talks about at the end of that quote, a richness of interpersonal life within the Godhead, which Christians came to call the Trinity. B.B. Warfield right after that. The times were not ripe for the revelation of the Trinity and the unity of the Godhead until the fullness of time had come for God to send forth his son unto redemption and his spirit unto sanctification. The revelation in word must needs wait upon the redemption in fact. God, in other words, was revealing, he was putting a seed that would grow and develop through the pages of the history that is put out in scripture. But this is not just about his power, nor his general goodwill towards his creation, but it is an issue of the fatherly relational closeness with man in particular. In other words, God is personal, and this is the meaning of the nature of how and why he made us. He made us in his image. The root word here of image is to carve or to cut off. In other words, man is shaped and formed to fit into the image of God. This is personal, with personality, not the contemporary meaning of those terms. It's not broad enough. Where person, personal means individual and personality just means traits. But this bears the ideas of mind and will and affections where we were made especially for relationship. First with other similar persons, but God is similar in some respects to us because he made us that way. We don't exist without other persons to give us meaning. While I don't agree profoundly with Pope Benedict, there is something I agree with him and it's right there in this quote. Human beings are most profoundly human when they step out of themselves and become capable of addressing God on familiar terms. So we were made for fellowship, for communion with God. So why would God create us? When I used to ask my youth that when I was in youth ministry, well, you know what their answer was? Because he was lonely. He just needed us. Can we see from here God's not lonely or needy? I mean, that would be tyrannical if he was like that. That he would be demanding from us in a way that he would, just, he would need us to survive, to feel good about himself. We know that God is already satisfied and doesn't need a relationship with us because of this Trinitarian nature. Doug Kelly says on your sheet there, what we learn for the full revelation of the New Testament is that God himself has never existed as a single, lonely, solitary, or cut off individual. Rather, he has always existed in the fullness of family-like being. Look at how Paul addresses it. 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And Athanasius, the Father has never been without his Son. So there's a pattern that we were made after, in being made in God's image, that we were made after this triune God, this personhood grounded in the trinity of the God who, whose image we all bear and the diversity of male and female. Now we'll get more into what the image of God is in us and the dominion mandate um, of verses 27, 28 next week. But why did God speak in this way? We see in Genesis 1 that God is speaking a lot. But in his speaking, in verse 26, we see within himself a triune community where each person bears godness, not as parts of the one true God, but as distinct persons who share in one nature of the true God. It is his nature to speak, and we speak too. Why? To talk with him. And he with us to understand God and he to listen and respond to us. It is embedded in our nature. Words are the infrastructure with which our worldview is made. God, God's commands are about word, about, look at his commands about words, I should say. The third commandment, Jesus warning about being held accountable for every careless word we speak. Look at your quote there from Doug Kelly. The linguist Noam Chomsky demonstrates that even the higher apes are unable to deal with the number systems or abstract properties of space or in general with an abstracted system of expressions. Chomsky speaks elsewhere of initially given structures of mind and deep structures which give rise to universal grammar invariant among humans. In other words, it's the same wherever you find human beings. His research on the uniqueness of the human species as regards language has not been welcomed in some evolutionist circles, it should say, who have labeled him a creationist, which he has denied. I think he's actually an agnostic Jew. And so hence, we have the mystery of human language systems that can never be accounted for by the evolutionary hypothesis Instead, these systems testify to our having been made in God's likeness, not to evolution from an impersonal, mute slime pit. So the ability for language is a portal to eternity, belonging so closely to our very being in nature, embedded within us as human beings, um, as human beings come to call and to focus on our Lord Jesus and to live after his image. Why? It is the nature of the Godhead to be talking amongst the persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John 1, 1 there in your sheet. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There in the quote from Hebrews 2 about how God has spoken in the past, the last days he has spoken, spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So as made in his image, made like him, after his own likeness, made unique and distinct among the creatures, he made us, and they quote there, unlike apes and other living creatures, 
Humanity's capacity for language is a door into that eternal unseen realm of word and a standing witness that we were created on a heavenly pattern for communion with the one who made us in his image. Only a speaking God could have made a speaking person. So how does God make good on making our lives good? He does this first by adding some finishing touches for our enjoyment and our aid. He does this by making some formal introductions to himself and what it means to be human, to be his image. You have made us for yourself, O God, and our souls cannot find rest until they find their rest in you. It is who we are. So what are we here to do? We have it in verse 28. We'll talk about that more next week about taking dominion. But in order to do the work of dominion, we need fuel, don't we? We need energy. And so God provides this vegetarian diet and these instructions of verse 29 and verse 30. For both animals and humans, there's continual sustenance there. It's continual because we were made to do something and we would need food for both enjoyment and for fuel. Now, is this saying that the vegetarian diet is the most ideal? No, not really. It's not why this is here. More importantly, what this is talking about is that there can be no death before the fall. The vegetarian diet means no death. Now, if this world were billions of years old, if this world were that, and you're trying to decide between the authority of science and the authority of God, at this point, and by the way, I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't support science. I actually believe it is the only true support of science and scientific endeavor, but we can talk about that another time. But if you believe in evolution and the old earth and you're trying to believe in the Bible, you can't do both. There is no death before the fall of man. And in fact, the fossil record has, there's one that you can see where a fish, a larger fish had just grabbed on to a smaller fish and something catastrophic happened of which the evolutionists deny. Well, they believe it could have happened that way, but it wouldn't make it worldwide. And we'll get to that in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8, the worldwide flood. That's when that fossil was captured. There are, in the digestive systems of some fossils, there are bones of other animals. It doesn't work together, folks. The symbol of God is that he is a God of life, not death. And that's where we're heading in this vision of the future in Isaiah. The cow from Isaiah eleven seven. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. We'll skip that other quote and just go right to our next point. That God enjoys the last point. Some first class enjoyment. Now this is a different sentence and paragraph construction. We've been talking about the wonder of what God has done in making the world for us, his image bearers. And of course, what does he do? He enjoys it. But you know, as before it was reported, God said, let there be, and, and it said over and over again, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. But here, he's looking at all the details together. And God saw everything that he had made. And it was very good. The quote from Doug Kelly, nothing could be more clear than the fact that the original created order was a place of holy beauty and peace. 
And so we have this different paragraph construction, but we also have an invitation into his enjoyment because it says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, that's your invitation to join with him. And behold, it was very good. So in conclusion, we are God's crowning joy. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that about the people around you? Regardless of their background or race or heritage. By the way, that's just different. We're all different shades of brown when the science is really studied. Image bearers of God all. Worthy of dignity. And that's why when we commit crimes and break God's law, regardless of your shade of melanin, it's so heinous. But what is God doing in this fallen world? He's calling you to the God-man that he sent into this world to restore that joy that you were designed for. After all, as Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. Last two quotes here. From Nigel Cameron, the world which God made for man to inhabit was very good. It, has, it had been prepared to receive him meaning man, as its crown. And the setting was constructed so as to be ideal for the probation, in other words, the test, or for Adam and Eve to test it out and also for them to be tested in their obedience to God, the probation to which Adam and Eve were called. The world was not created with the fall in prospect, still less with the curse already let loose. In other words, it's not what Plato said, not the physical that's bad. No, this is very good, as God said. So no death before the fall. We do have death now. And so what does God do about that? From Hebrews 2, lastly on your page there, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, listen, God the Son, we want to shake our fist at God and say, how could you let this happen? Look at what God the Son did. He likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one. Look at this. this is the, look at the compassion. He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What a merciful, what a kind, what a holy God that would make us for his joy and restore us unto that joy through the work of his dear spotless son. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please make room in our hearts for that joy, that joy of Jesus. In his precious and holy name we pray. Amen.